If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I have a little running joke as a, as a chair sometimes that it's nice to introduce somebody who needs no introduction um, because it makes my job so much easier. But in the case of Mary Beard, it really is somebody who needs no introduction whatsoever. Um, we're all here because we're all so excited about this book and I don't know how many of you have had a chance to read the newest version. I'm sure many of you um, heard the lecture and read it in its iterations, as Claire mentioned, um, in the LRB. Uh, but it, it's been really interesting to look also at some of the updates that you've done in, uh, in writing it that I thought we might talk about. And I, I got the feeling, actually, as you were doing it, and we're all aware of how current events are making the question of women and power really rather a live one. Um, and I did at a point, of, I had this sort of image of you, you know, reading the news and going, God, got to go, okay, get that in. Um, and of course, you can never keep entirely up to date with, uh, with what's happening, although I thought you handled that very elegantly. The basic thrust of your argument, and again, I'm sure um, almost everybody here knows this, but what, what Mary's doing in the book is making the case that the problem with women and power in our society, and I'm going to take as read that there is a problem with women yeah, and yeah, power yes. in our society. I'm not yeah. going to try to establish that. Um, the problem with women and power, the problem with women and authority is a structural one that goes all the way back to Mary's area of expertise in the classics. And you begin with a really interesting example um, with the Odyssey and Telemachus silencing his mother. And it's a, it, it was a, it was a, it's a really, I think it's a really interesting moment to, to start this uh, story and this case, implicitly a case, for the long structural silencing of women with the observation that you make that it's not just that men have traditionally silenced women, but that it's a rite of passage. That Telemachus is asserting his masculinity by silencing his mother and literally sending her to her room. Um, it's a reversal, right, of the, of the parent-child relationship. And I wondered if you could say more about what you think the, what, what sorts of lessons we can take from understanding that this isn't simply an assertion of power but it's a, that it's embedded in definitions of what it means to be a man. Yeah, I don't know what exactly what lessons we take mm. from it, but I, I do think it's hugely important not to see this as some kind of um, happenstance or some generalised misogyny. You know, oh, of course, women have never really been included in the power game. Uh, they haven't been allowed to speak. Uh, um, to imagine there's a kind of general tie-up between these things. I mean, I think that, that for me, and it, you know, it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me when I, you know, I'd started, because I was a bit of a swat, right? I'd started to read the Odyssey when I was a teenager, and I had read this passage at the beginning of the Odyssey. I'd, I'd struggled over it in Greek. I'd read it in translation rather more often. Um, and I'd never kind of seen how important it was. And then I think that, I suppose I found it quite helpful to say, look, you know, as you say, it, this is, it isn't just that women get shut up. It's just that women are defined by being the people who can't speak. And women are defined as silent. And as you say, men are defined in their growing up as those that learn to shut their mothers up. 
right? And that is, you know, and that is a much bigger and a much stronger and more edgy argument than just saying, oh, look, women have never had really the opportunity to speak in public. Of course they haven't. It's just they have, it has been part of the definition of a man that they should not let women mm. speak in public. Now, in, in some ways, that's a, you know, that's a kind of downer realisation. <laughs> um, but in other ways, it, it's, it just, you know, and I suppose it's, it's over the last 15 10 years that I've kind of seen that from the Odyssey as clearly. In some ways, it, it actually made me feel better, you know, because that to think that this was a particular axiom that you could see as an axiom and challenge. So it's, it, you know, it, it's a downer because it's, it's so brutal. And you can go through the rest of classical literature, you can go through the rest of most of world history and see that Telemachus moment being reenacted. But it's also once you have seen it, you see much more clearly what the enemy is. Instead of thinking there's just this generalized sense that girls don't talk, you see, no, I've got, you know, I've got a target here. It's Telemachus. <laughs> It could be the subtitle, The Case Against Telemachus. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He was so wet behind the ears, so dim. Yeah. Penelope was so smart and middle-aged, and yet Telemachus mm. shuts her up. So Telemachus is the enemy. Well, it, okay, so now that, that um, I'm afraid, entices me into doing something you told me on Twitter this morning not to do, um, which is that, so Mary, some of you will follow Mary on Twitter. I'm sure many of you follow Mary on Twitter, as I do. Um, and, it's, and it's something that you, that you um, bring up in the book more than once, this question of social media, which is a very live question for um, women trying to assert their voices in public today. And one of the things that you said um, that really resonated with me was that um, many women today are advised to, um, to, you know, don't feed the trolls is the expression, right? It's the attention that they're looking for, so don't, don't give them any response. And yet, because it's a binary proposition, you either respond or you don't. If you don't respond, you're feeding into that silence, as you say. You're accepting that social position that women don't speak out. So you're implicitly in this book really answering that charge by saying we must keep speaking yeah. out. But you, there was this morning, so you, in, the, in the interest of that, we don't yeah. need to name any names, but there was an unfortunate individual who decided to tangle with Mary this morning. Um, you know, as you say, it was like, I don't know if he was wet behind the ears or not. He certainly emerged looking that way. Um, but what I found really interesting about what he said was, um, again, it's this really old trope. He said, that um, he, he suspected, and, he, and I should say he identified as a man, right? He had a, a very clearly masculine name, so I'm not making assumptions here. Um, but he said that he, um, he suspected that powerful women were probably just women trapped in a sociopathic men's body. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and, you know, and, and Mary's response, do you remember your response was, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> Rather beautifully put him in his place. And yet, I also think it's worth taking up the question because it's something that I've seen. For me, you talk about the light bulb moment um, a minute ago that we all have at various points. I think men and women at various points where we see this structural uh, um, inequality and suddenly realize that it's for real and it's not just women making noise and it's not just you know being uh, you know unwilling to get along. And for me, one of them was. Um, when I was working on a book about Marilyn Monroe, which was my first book, and the realization that every time she asserted power, she was accused of being unfeminine in some yes. way. And it was the, what the penny dropped for me was the realization that in our culture, power and men are so closely aligned that a powerful woman is literally a category error. Yeah. That people think yeah. you can't be a woman. That power yeah. is so strongly yeah. tied to being yeah. a man yeah. that if you are a powerful woman, well, then you're not a woman. Uh, this is keeping it to the kind of level of national politics at the mm. moment. And one of the things I'd like to do is to think that this isn't just about um, people who run countries. This is about power at every level, whether it's you know in the shop at the photocopier or wherever. But it, it's kind of particularly easy to study it at a national level. Uh, and do you see that in every which way? You see that, and this goes back. And I, I, 
I won't give you the classical history lesson, but I can tell you it, we goes, classical history lesson, don't it we? goes back to the ancient world and has never been broken that if you want to think of a powerful woman, you have to think of a man. Mm. And that powerful women, powerful women in um, modern international politics, uh, they know that too. Mm. I mean, you only have to look, it's one of the pictures I choose in the book, um, you only have to look at how people like Hillary Clinton and uh, Angela Merkel dress to see that they dress like very often they dress like men. They have these regulation trouser suits, almost identical. It's a great picture. And you think kind of, you know, in some ways, well, that's great because, you know, they're refusing. They're refusing to kind of do frippery. But actually, they're also buying into the sense that you have to wear a suit, a trouser suit, if you want to be powerful. We know that Thatcher took lessons in deepening her voice because... Uh, she had been accused of having too high-pitched and shrill a voice, which really meant that her views were not taken seriously. Some of us think it might have been a good idea if Thatcher's views hadn't been taken seriously, <laughs> but never mind. Um, you win some and lose some on this one. Um, but And you see it just simply in the adjective deep, deep voice. You know, deep meaning profound, powerful, and deep. And so... We're kind of hardwired. It's not, and I don't mean that kind of evolutionarily. I mean culturally hardwired to associate power with male, with with every kind of male attribute. And I, I remember other people might here may well have been in the same position. But you know, I, I don't think this is something that we can just blame somehow, kind of project onto the unreconstructed. We're all implicated in this. You know, so that, you know, when I close my eyes and think of a professor, I still, you know, I still don't think of me. I am a professor, but I don't think, you know, my fantasy professor is still white beard, you know, kind of Einstein. Right? That's what I see. But I remember very clearly the first time, and it's, you know, it's utterly shaming this. First time was on a plane, and when the captain spoke, it was a woman. And I remember for that split second, when the captain first spoke as female in my hearing, I thought, why is the stewardess giving this announcement? <laughs> and then you know, I quickly embarrassed myself and thought, oh, great, it's a female pilot. But my first instinct was to think, woman isn't flying this plane. So if woman's voice is flying this plane, that's because... Um, the captain is delegated to the <laughs> and God, we're all going to die. <laughs> and I, I think, I, mean, I, I think it is so culturally ingrained, and I think it's also so culturally ingrained in a way that we can't blame. You know, we can't just go around blaming the unreconstructed because we're all in it. Absolutely. I think the question of internalized misogyny is a really, really important one that the that in my view, our society is nowhere near coming to grips with. Um, we will come on to the question of, um, of sexual assault, which is so much in everybody's minds right now. But before we do that, I'd like to stick with politics for a second. And then, well, not that this is all about politics, obviously, um, but uh, it's just saying geo, geo, geopolitics. Um, because this, this question about the, the, the deep, as you say, and masculinized in that sense, the deep association, the profound association between men and power and it's something that you pick up on as well in the book, also means that the, the, the reverse of that holds true, which is that it is illegitimate for women to seek power, right? And that doesn't just mean that if you've got a high voice, people don't construe you as powerful. It means, for example, um, and this was one of my uh, uh, light bulb moments again last year during the campaign. And that's, I think, one of the important things about this is that you can, as you say, you can be a feminist. You can be very self-consciously a feminist and still keep having these light bulb moments <laughs> and going, oh, my God, why didn't I see that? Um, because it's internalized, because we have all taken in these codes our whole lives. And for me, it was trying to come to grips with this crooked Hillary meme, right? This idea that Hillary was crooked. But they didn't care what crimes she had committed. And I was trying to get my head around that. That it was like literally anything they could think of, they would throw at her. Everything from actually being Beelzebub, 
I mean, yeah. she was literally called yeah. Satan and Beelzebub many, many times during the campaign through Russians, through Benghazi, yeah. through whatever, through emails, which, by the way, should you be interested, she broke not even no laws, but no rules doing that. And that's from the Office of the Inspector General. That's all. She did not even break any rules. The email thing is so fabricated, you can't even believe it. And then you just go, here's the spectrum where everything that she did was crooked. And it finally hit me. And I thought, oh, what's crooked? It's illegitimacy. Yes. What this is about yeah. is that it is yeah. illegitimate yeah. for a woman to seek power. Yeah. And I think that's, you see that uh, on a, you know, a much more mundane level in some of the very obvious bits of language we use. You know, if we say of a young man, he is ambitious, that is a compliment. If we say of a woman of the same age, she's ambitious, that is not a compliment. Uh, you know, and I, I sometimes think that kind of, the, these battles will largely have been won when just to use the word ambitious of a woman uh, is at least neutral, you know, <laughs> yeah. even if not a compliment. But I, I think the Hillary case is really interesting because it connects with a whole lot of other aspects of how women's power has been undermined. Again, it happens to go back to antiquity, or more than happens to go. We've in many ways inherited it through centuries of Western culture, that somehow women are by definition devious. Women are not straight. Um, you know, how do women kill you in antiquity? Right? Well, they don't do it in the way that men kill you, which is get a knife and stab it in your front. Right? That's male killing. How do women kill you? Women kill you by poison. Right? It is, it is the loving wife and mother who is undermining that status by this ultimate deception that the food they give you is going to kill you. Right, and it goes right from that to ancient and modern attacks on women's makeup, on women's appearance, on the kind of double bind that women get into of being ridiculed if they look like me, you know, and have got grey hair and they make no effort to disguise that, and ridiculed if they do make an effort yeah. to disguise it. You, know, you can, you, you are a, a middle-aged or later woman, you cannot win. You know, you're either disguising what you really are, or you're having the effrontery to let it out. Mutton dressed as lamb. Yes, it's just, and that is, uh, you know, we joke about this, but it means that that women, I think, in politics, it's not that they're particularly susceptible to accusations of crookedness, of lying, of dissembling, but there's a ready cultural field in which it seems real. You know, what you're looking at when you look at a woman is never what quite is what she is. Whereas you can look at the wrinkled old bloke, you know, um, with, you know, it's, Craggy, you know, not, no, we don't call men, men wrinkles. Silver fox and craggy, you know. You know no woman with wrinkles is called craggy. Uh, <laughs> perhaps they wouldn't want to be. Um, and it's never a compliment. And it, it's very interesting when, um, you know, the, it, this has all kinds of ramifications, I think, about how people can speak about men and women in power. Um, because in some ways men are victims of this as well. Um, I have to say. Um, Absolutely. Last year, perhaps the year before, I did a, a, a Radio 4 programme about grey hair and about when, what happens to women who decide not to colour their hair and how legitimate that is. And by the time, over the period we were planning the programme, that became a rather tired topic, actually, because everybody had done it. <laughs> and we felt to talk about men. Right? Does it, now, actually... We thought of all the men we knew who must colour their hair. <laughs> uh, whereas we could find any woman will go on the radio and talk about their dilemmas about colouring or not colouring or whatever. We could not, until I eventually press-ganged one of my colleagues, we could not find a bloke who would go on the radio and talk about hair colouring. Mm. Now, in some ways, that's, you know, for them, before anybody kind of accuses us here of, of, of you know, simply othering these guys... Uh, 
that is the downside of this. That why you want to undermine some of these you know, these assumptions, these tropes, and these kind of chains actually, which hold women down and hold women back, is because also it frees up the guys who are who are as trapped in this illusion, or you know, the Telemachus illusion that that men speak and women shut up, uh, as as any of us are. Well, I do think that's the, the, the issue, and, and it's something that in the last few years people are, are talking about a lot more is the issue of a binary notion of gender, that it's so rigid, that you're either one or the other, and there's no, and you know, only very recently are we trying to find um, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and however many other um, ways out of that. I wonder, though, what you would say to a reader who says, okay, I, this is all new to me. I didn't know anything about this argument, I had no idea this was so old, I had no idea this was so deep-seated, I sort of hoped it was new, <laughs> and that therefore we could sort of make it go away. Because it seems to me that there's a risk of fatalism mm. in, in looking at something that stretches back literally millennia and thinking, well then, we're never gonna be the ones to crack this, twas ever thus. <laughs> yes. um, how, how, so how, how, how much, what, as it, what would you say to somebody who says, how can this help us push past it? I would say that Looking and facing the long history of this is the one thing which is going to help us in the end push past it. By the time I got to university, I had kind of got the message that what you needed to do in order to secure the fair, you know, the fair place of women in the workforce, in politics, in public life, you know, in teaching, in Whatever sphere, there were, the, what was holding us back was a whole series of practical things. You know, if only we'd have more workplace nurseries. You know, if you know, let's get equal pay sussed. Now, I, I'm not for a minute suggesting that workplace nurseries are not an excellent idea. Of course, they are. Equal pay is certainly a good you know, idea. A good we're, idea we're both for that. I, you know, <laughs> I, but the idea somehow. But between us and fairness, there just lay these kind of practical reforms that we had to do. Now seems to me to probably to be, well, it was both very disappointing because you've got lots of workplace nurseries in universities and it still didn't change the, the number of the percentage of people who are professors, you know. So while it was right and while it was necessary, it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't sufficient for changing the way we think about people's relationship with power. So in, in some ways, I mean, I can see there is a sort of awful fatalism that you might read into this. But I hope that what, what I'm saying is, look, if we look at it, if we analyze the problem correctly, we will be much better at getting a solution. You know, if we just stop thinking that it's all about, you know, you know having family-friendly hours in the House of Commons, for example, um, you know, it's clearly a good idea to have family-friendly hours in the House of Commons. It isn't going to change the macho culture of the House of Commons, however, which is built on something that we have to look at in a quite different way. We have to see its history in a quite different way. And if you say... Well, so what do you do when you've seen that? Um, I don't think I feel too ashamed by saying, well, I'm not sure, actually, because I think you know, it's a bit like people my age kind of remembering back in the sort of mid-70s, um, you know, feminist consciousness raising groups. <laughs> I mean, it actually really helped to work out what the problem was. And that's the first step in the solution, I think, to, rec to recognise our own implication in it. You know, and I think it's, it doesn't help blaming ourselves. It's not entirely our fault. It's, some of it's our fault, but not all of it. Um, and we need to look ourselves and history in the eye and know what we need to change. And what we need to change is not only the provision of workplace nurseries, important that is, we have to change the way people think. We have to call them out. We have to, and I think um, we, we let people get away with using language without saying, hang on. Uh, and you know, I think, you know, in a funny way, although I think you can see that I might look as if I'm fatalistic, I feel slightly optimistic because I think we are you know, we have come on such a long way. You know, I, and when I was writing this book, I realized that my mum had been 
born before women had the right to vote in general elections in this country. I mean, you know, <laughs> they got it pretty soon after she was born, but you know, she was just the other side of that. And there has been a revolution, and we should be partly patting ourselves on the back and saying, well done, you know. You know the Equal Pay Act, um, yeah, however much abused and unobserved it is, was something that would have been unbelievable uh, when I was a child. But you know, the final frontier is in our heads. You know, it's not in legislation. You can't legislate simply for what people think. Legislation can help change views, but actually, it can't. Can't. It's not the final frontier. So, how much do you think that the current? pushback that women are seeing, and I'm thinking particularly on social media, which obviously you have very extensive experience with the, the misogyny that comes at women who speak out um, in public. I have more limited experience of it, but um, I've had it too. And um, it's quite something when the onslaught begins. It begins after you go on question time, basically. Yes, uh, the rest of the time, they don't notice you. But if you go on yeah, question time, then bloody they notice. hell, yes. the floodgates yes. open. Yeah, come and get me. I mean, exactly. It's just extraordinary. And I have to say, as an aside, you know, I think for me, one of the uses of history is that I found, so I, I was on question time um, last year, immediately after Trump was elected, 48 hours after he was elected, and boy, there were a lot of British people who did not like what I had to say about Trump. I mean, I thought the Americans would come after me. I didn't think the Brits were gonna come after me for not liking Trump, but boy, they sure did. And um, anyway, the reason I mention it is because the stuff that comes at you is not, I disagree with your politics, or even, or even I wanna shoot you in the head because of your politics. So it's not even that the threats of violence, they're not filtered through your political point of view, they're filtered through your sex. So what they say is, you know, I want to, I, I want to, you know, you should be raped, you should be, you should be, you know, you're, you, anyway, all kinds of yeah. things should happen to your genitalia. Yeah. Um, what they say is you're a bitch, a harridan, a yeah. slut, yeah. Um, yeah. a shrew. Yeah. They throw, but I found, so the thing I was going to mention is that I found really extraordinary was that having studied misogyny for 20 years inoculated me against it. Because in, in, in the personal sense, it didn't make me happy that it was happening, obviously. It appalled me that it was happening. But I didn't take any of it personally because it was so clearly a trope. And I just kept going, oh, well, I just walked into a trope. That that's just what happened here. That's partly because... Um, you are of an age to be able to say that. Mm, indeed. You know, I feel there's not, there are not many advantages, but there yeah. are some definite advantages about getting older. Yeah. And um, your ability to withstand people saying, I want to cut your head off and rape it. Yeah. And to see that for what it is. And to just laugh at it. To to actually just at go, it. I mean, I'm sort of frightened, but I'm also sort of just, yeah. I just sort of want to giggle. Yes. <laughs> it is. I mean, I mean, I think abuse on social media is, uh, is a mildly interesting phenomenon. I think when it first happens to you, you know, you, you innocently get on your iPhone and you think, I'll have a look at Twitter. <laughs> and there's somebody who says, you know, not only your vagina smells like a cabbage, but I'm going to... I, I want got to so much fish. I so much fish. fish. It was so old school. Right. I was like, everyone you know, reading Lear? And, what the hell? And, you know, to start with, it, you know, it would be wrong, I think, to say that you don't think... No, you know, you're kind of winded in that way that, you know, remember when you were a kid and you fell over, you just, somehow your breath is literally taken away. But by the time you get to my age, and to have seen it several times, just like you, I think, I think this, you know, I've walked into a trope here. Yeah. No, I think you have to be pretty realistic about this. If somebody threatens to kill you, I think oh. you have to go to the police. Absolutely. You know, death threats are a crime. There's no issue and so about are rape this. threats. Yeah, and rape threats. Yep. There is, and there's no issue about that. And even if you know that they are fantasy, you can't, you know, partly because... You don't know. <laughs> but you don't know. And when somebody does something nasty to you in two months' time, and yep. you say to the police, oh, I did have a couple of death threats. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they say, and you didn't report them. Yep. You know, you just think, there is, there is just every which way you do that. But the rest, you know, I, I think it's, it's a trope about... Not what women say, but that they're opening their mouths. Yeah. And when I looked at some of these, um, you know, it's a pretty kind of gloomy experience going through Twitter looking for this kind of stuff. It's not difficult to find. They are, uh, some of them are 
are very, very explicitly about stopping you speaking. They're not arguing, trying to get you to change your mind. Slap you until you shut up. You need, she right. needs to be slapped until she shuts up. Get a lot. Yeah, that's get right. You know, um, Do you also you, speak more than everybody else on the panel? I also... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply always speak more than everybody else on the panel. That's right. Even though yes. I had a friend time me one yes. time. And then no, it's not. And they say things like, I'm going to cut your tongue out. Mm. You know, fast forward then to those incidents where very occasionally on the news you see some, usually men, they're not always men to be yeah. fair, um, some sad loner who lives in his mum's attic um, with a very old laptop who spends most of his very, very sad nighttime hours abusing women on the internet. And you see him getting a six month custodial sentence for abusing a celebrity, female usually. You think, I'm not certain that much good has been done here. And it took me some time to, to kind of see that out there, there are, there are some very, very wicked people. There's some really nasty, wicked, nasty people um, who mean ill. Most of the people on Twitter who are doing this are sad loners. And uh, I, I don't want to waste public money, nor do I want to turn them into criminals by locking them up. I just want to think about how we make sure they don't do this. And, you know, I think there's, there's a, you know, and I'm afraid this is what Trump shows us in some ways. There is a kind of underclass of disadvantaged, not wholly, but largely white blokes in this country. And um, elsewhere. And elsewhere. <laughs> and I mean, across the ocean. I'm sure they're across the ocean. <laughs> and in fact, on Twitter, you often can't tell where they come yeah. from. <clears throat> Who are doing terrible things, who have views that I just can't even imagine going there, but are in some ways victims of this themselves. You know, I think some of these awful misogynists, part pretend misogynists because they're kind of saying, look at me, look at me, are as much victims of the difficulties of us coming to terms with social media as the more apparent victims. I mean, I think, let's say in the book, I was very struck by like if you look back to the beginnings, you know, 15 years ago, the, the, the kind of great beginnings of social media when anybody is going to be able to talk to anybody in the world, you know, Utopia. you know, and we were going to be able to communicate with whoever the prime minister was, whoever, you know, and, you know, a lot of people believed that. And, you know, one of the things that you notice about social media is that, you know, apart from a few campaigns, good campaigns that are, that are run by it. It, it, it and, and despite the fact that there are guys out there, you know, real idiots saying, I'm going to come and cut your tongue out. Despite that, basically the people who have the right to speak are the traditional elite. You know, social media has not democratized our communication. And I think people feel very frustrated by it. And I kind of feel, I don't know what you do with the sad loners in the attic. But I don't want to incarcerate them. With their laptop? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe to separate them from their laptop. One last question out of that, and then we'll, um, we'll open things up to the, to the audience, because I'm sure I have lots of questions too. But um, apart from the sad loners in the attic, there is another question which I alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, which has become very prominent in the last few weeks, 
which is about the men who are very much not in the attic and are very much out and about and very much making sure that, that the women around them are aware of their power. Um, they're making, I mean, the most extraordinary one for me um, in the last, I mean, it's like every 24 hours a new yeah. one rolls yeah. out. Um, is the Charlie Rose story. Yes. Now, you may not all know who Charlie Rose is, but he's, it, this is, so I, and I mean no disrespect in saying this to the, to the, uh, I'm about to make a comparison, and I'm not in any way alleging that the person I'm comparing Charlie Rose to has done anything like this. But it's basically like learning that David Dimbleby or Jeremy Paxman, um, routine, because he is, Charlie Rose is the elder statesman of American political conversation. He's one of our trusted anchors and all of, and he's been around for 30, 40 years. And these stories have been coming out in the last 24 hours that he routinely would take off all of his clothes and meet women staffers naked, na full naked, and nobody was talking about this. And it's just the latest of all, from Weinstein forward that we've seen. Um, Al Franken, people in the, um, in the Senate, and of course, the um, inestimable Roy Moore, um, who is the Alabama, I'm sure you've all seen the Alabama Senate candidate who um, has been accused multiple times of pedophilia. And when I say pedophilia, I mean that they said, you know, that he was banned from schoolyards, he was banned from malls as a 30-year-old. At 32, he, this, this woman has alleged that at, when she was 14 and he was 32, and she was at a custody hearing for her parents, and he was the, the judge for the custody hearing for her parents, that he came outside and found this vulnerable 14-year-old and groomed her. There was a young woman who, who tweeted just before I came here tonight, who is the young president, president of young Republicans or some such, um, of one of the young Republicans groups in America. And she gave her an interview to NBC where she said she was coming out against Roy Moore's candidacy, you'll be glad to hear, because she said, and I quote, at some point decency comes before politics. Uh, I think this is, I feel quite puzzled I mean, gratified in some ways, but puzzled mm. by this. I mean, and I, I have all kinds of different kind of questions and conundrums about we could do a whole hour just what on we've that. seen yeah. since since Feinstein in a way. Um, I mean, for a start, I don't know whether this is actually a change moment. Mm. Whether in two years' time we look back to this and think that was when what we tolerated changed, mm. or whether it's a kind of a little flash in the pan and everything is good to go. Nobody's been charged yet. No, it's not a single charged. criminal charge. And you know, some of it is not criminal. No, nope. uh, quite a lot of what people are being charged for is you know, awful. You know, sleazy. You know. Embarrassing for them, I hope to have out, but it's not criminal. Some of it is criminal. Some of it is criminal, and I think it's it's all being lumped together now. So the criminal and the the, the non-criminal is being lumped together. I mean, I think that leaving the criminal aside, I feel slightly uneasy that this all comes out around celebrity culture. That is not this. You know, nobody's much interested in what happens to women by photocopiers in the average office. They're interested when it's in the Palace of Westminster or in Hollywood or in the theater. So it's kind of focusing this as if it's a, a, an aberration. A, it's aberration at the top. It's what men who we think of as men in power do. Now, in fact, one of the things I try to argue in the book is that power we have to see in a much more kind of generalized way. And actually, you know, I don't know about this audience tonight, but you get anybody my age, probably your age too, Sarah, and we would go through just, you know, what we had just, you know, didn't leave me particularly battered, but the, you know, if I were to count the gropes oh, that I'd had. The oh, tongues in the throat. Oh, God, get your tongue out. You know, <laughs> what is it? Just do it. Just so, take your tongue no. out of my mouth. <laughs> and I suppose leaving the criminal aside, I would like us to have a wider view about the women who are, you know, putting up with this. And I think my priority is that the guys just stop it, you know? <laughs> here, here. I, I, don't, I don't much care, really, about, you know, I, I'm as prurient as the rest, and I read it in my Sunday newspapers too, but ultimately, I don't much care about read, reading about whose hand was on whose knee, wanted or not, 20 years ago. I actually 
leaving aside the criminal, I'd be prepared to give the whole bloody lot of these guys an amnesty as long as they didn't do it again. I don't want to waste my time, actually, kind of trying to work out um, you know, quite how nasty we should be to, you know, prominent politician X or prominent actor Y. I'm prepared to say, look, we just forget it, but you never do that again. And there is a kind of sense that I wonder whether, and I don't know, you know, when, if we were here in two years' time, we'd have a much better idea of this, whether actually our own kind of sense of self-righteousness about all this will be precisely what means that it doesn't really change the climate. Actually, it's a bit like loners in the attic. Don't want to put them in prison. I want them to have something better to do. <laughs> you know, and I just want these guys, and it's mostly guys, but it's, I'm sure it's not all, um, just, you know, to cr- Grow the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't think of a better note on which to, uh, to turn things out to the audience. So um, as we said in the introduction, we don't have a roving mic because they've got a new sound system set up here. So I'm going to call on people. I'm going to ask you to be as loud as you can Shut. so I can hear you. But also we are recording the event. So I'm going to repeat the questions back before Mary answers it. So there is a very eager question over here. So if everybody can just stand up, make sure we hear your question, and then I'll repeat it back for the recording. Okay, great. So the question was about girls-only schools and whether they are the best way, or the the questioner suggested not maybe the best way, to create safe spaces for uh, girls to feel empowered. But if segregation is not the best way for girls to be empowered, (laughs) um, what suggestions do you have in terms of education? I haven't got a party pre because I'm not sure I've got a, a, a clear answer to that. But I did go to a girls-only school, and I subsequently went to a women's-only college um, in Cambridge, although a women's-only college is a rather different um, <laughs> um, environment from a girls-only school. I suppose you would say that, I think my school would say that I was um, an example of the success of that kind of education. Because I have to say, maybe I was very blind. I I probably was. But until I got to Cambridge, I didn't realize that there were people in the world who thought that women were somehow not capable of doing some things (laughs) that men do. I mean, I obviously had not kind of, you know, I read my German Greer, et cetera, but that had been an extremely intellectual kind of uh, operation. It hadn't really hit me that there were actually people who would think that me, I, was not capable of doing whatever I wanted to do. I think that my school would have been happy with that because I think by the time that I did meet that kind of view, which I met in spades in the University of Cambridge back then, I thought it was completely bonkers. I just, you know, I wasn't terribly well equipped to deal with it, except in having a a sense of it being a completely ridiculous argument. I I find it very hard, apart from that, because I do, you know, I'm I'm in a women's only college and I'm very committed to it staying that way, um, for reasons I won't go into. But I'm also somebody who would say, look, if I was inventing education, would I invent it so that girls and boys were educated separately? You know, of course I would. You know, the idea of sitting down there and saying, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll separate the girls from the boys. Would that seem a good idea? No, it wouldn't. So I find it very hard to know outside the kind of rubric of safe spaces, which I find quite difficult. I see what's being said. I find it quite difficult. I suppose I think back to my mum, really, uh, because she was a primary school head teacher. Um, and I'm sure it's easier in a primary school than a secondary school. But I kind of think back to a woman in, from my observation of her, who actually had no qualms and considerable skill about saying who was boss in this school and in having, I think, uh, no truck with the incipient sexism of 11-year-olds. <laughs> now, so, I mean, I think, you know, the answer is probably you have to suck it and see. Uh, you have to have, you know, what you don't want, you know, if you have a, 
a hierarchy, which, you know, the University of Cambridge is trying and it's getting a lot better, but if you have a hierarchy in which every professor is a man and, and you get fewer women the further you go down the power structure, um, then it's hardly surprising that women get to feel that somehow their voice isn't going to be heard. So I think it's, there's a kind of joined up thinking we have to do, but there's no magic bullet. I still feel slightly grateful to my girls only school. You know, when I remember, I, well, I shouldn't take this time. I remember the first time I realized that even students thought that women weren't quite as good. So a friend of mine, he's still a friend of mine, came into my very messy room in Cambridge. He picked up an essay from my floor, which had been marked, and it said at the bottom, um, this is a very good essay, this would certainly get a first. He looked at me and said, you get a first? And I thought, you're only saying that because I'm a girl. So the question, if I, so I'm going to try to put it in, in um, slightly different terms, and I hope I don't um, mischaracterize what you said, but the, the question is about um, Mary's uh, observation that when women wear uh, pantsuits and work to deepen their voice and things, that they're in some way needing to adopt a masculine notion of power, and the question was whether whether those kinds of pantsuits and that sort of deep voice might just be gender neutral attributes of power and that they are and that they are simply expressing themselves through mediums that see those as powerful yeah right so are those just symbols of power that these women have been, have been able to appropriate i can see why you argue that and i would like to agree but from my experience of observing and you know, I'm just one pair of eyes among many, is that the suit is manswear, and that when women adopt the suit, what they are saying is that they are adopting male clothing. Now, I think that it might not always be like that, but when it's combined, not only with Margaret Thatcher making her voice deeper, uh, there is, I'm afraid, I think, you know, again, we're all sometimes guilty of this. You know, you hear a woman on the Today programme talking in a very high-pitched voice, and you think, she's been, and, and I, you stop, I, I stop myself, but I'm still thinking that that's not serious. She's being shrill. And we also know that women are in some powerful occupations. They are sent away on courses like Thatcher was to speak more deeply. Now, you could say that's just because this is a connotation of ungendered power. But at every turn, what it turns out to be is that the woman ends up looking more like a bloke. She's speaking more like a bloke. She's wearing clothes that are more like those that we associate with blokes. And I don't think it has to be that way. And I think when you put it together with our closing our eyes and imagining what a, a person in power looks like, and they've got trousers on. They've always got trousers on. It, I find it hard not to square the circle. And in some ways, I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which I, you know, disagree with Thatcher and with Theresa May more fundamentally than I could ever imagine. I think more interesting in their self-perception and self-presentation is not the, I'm going to look like a bloke. It's the way both of them have taken actually cultural symbols of femaleness and, as it were, turned them into symbols of power. Uh, that was very obvious with Thatcher and the handbag. You know, that, you know, the handbag is about as female a, a, a kind of accoutrement as you could possibly imagine, and it was turned into a verb of power to handbag. Now, admittedly, with a certain sense of parody. But it was. And I think that May has almost done that with her shoes. She's saying, you know, I'm, I, you know you're not entirely going to make me a bloke. You know, look at my feet. This is, I am not a man. 
Now, whether this is going to do Theresa May any good in the long run is quite another matter. <laughs> Well, it's one of the interesting things you say in the book is this is the suspicion that you're having that she may have been set up to fail. She is the, you know, we will know better in two or three years' time. But you, it's very hard to know with May whether um, she has taken, used, and exploited power or whether she was left there mm, to, <laughs> to deal, to fail to deal with the mess. Mm. A very pithy and cogent question. Thank you. makes it easy for me. I can almost do it verbatim. Um, the question was, given the association between um, uh, power and charisma, sexuality, and virility, and the ways in which those are masculinized, how can women who either have authority or aspire to have authority challenge that or uh, deal with, the, with that association? I mean, that is the real conundrum. And that's why, in a sense, you know, when I say very you know, over-optimistically and un Ill, probably ill-definedly that we need to rethink what power is, part of the element that we have to think to rethink is its connection with particular forms of male sexuality. And, and we all know the disequilibrium of this, you know, that you know, until the latest, but, you know, for most of my life, the male predator has been powerful, the female flirt has been despised. I, I just, I simply don't know how we break through that. I mean, I, I think it's very hard to know how legitimate you feel in using, whether consciously or not, ways of behaviour that are perceived as female to make your, make your point or get your way. Now, sometimes, sometimes I think, well, why the hell not? Right? You know, why the hell not? I remember once I was, uh, many, many years ago, I was in a big meeting in Cambridge, and I just got lumbered with something completely unreasonably, without any warning. And I just burst into tears and walked out. And I thought, oh no. <laughs> you, know, you know, what a failure is that, you know? And actually, it was one of the best things I ever did. You know, the blokes were all too embarrassed because I was probably the only woman in the meeting because this was a long time ago. They thought, oh, they, I, I kind of eventually realised they'd sat there and thought, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, what do we do now? Uh, they didn't sort of dare come out and find out if I was all right. But in the end, they were apologetic. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, sometimes, sometimes maybe it's all right no, maybe men should burst into tears more. You know, maybe we should kind of, well, instead know, of getting naked and, you know, working it out that way. Instead of taking your clothes off, you <laughs> know, have a cry like really a normal waving, person. Have a cry. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe some of these kind of ways that we now think are just unthinkable. You know, when people said recently that after she failed to give her speech because she got a bad cough in, at the Tory party conference, that Theresa May went and cried on Philip shoulder and oh god and, and all these stories about how previously they thought that she needed to be given some advice in being strong by somebody from the SAS you know <laughs> and you thought actually if that had happened to me I'd have wanted a good <laughs> cry and you know actually if more of these blokes in parliament thought they needed a good cry instead of you know you know, destroying the world. <laughs> Maybe, it could, but we're such a long way from from seeing those kind of traditionally symbolised bits of female behaviour as anything other than a, a, a kind of example of victimhood. I think I'd like to see a lot more tears on the front <laughs> bench of the Tory party. So the question was going back to the initial idea about um, Telemachus and the, and the idea that, that men have to silence women to acquire power. And the question was, um, are there better ways that we might be able to teach men to think about power, to teach our culture to think about power, and particularly for parents of uh, young boys to think about what they might teach their boys yeah. about power? I mean, I think it's, it has to be the way. You know, in some level, we have to say, this has got to change because people start to find some of these traditional ways of behavior, not just kind of inappropriate, but silly, you know, but literally silly. And it's, but it's very hard. It's easy to see what the end result we want is. Um, and it's much 
harder to see how you get there. I mean, I suppose I'm going to give a very academic answer here. You know, I don't think it's as simple as making sure every girl has a tractor to play with, or that you know, I, you know. I, when I was first a parent, I was so Stalinist. You know, I didn't want any pink or blue, and you know, all the rest. And, and, you know, actually, they're living in a world. You know, you might as well forget sexual Stalinism at home because they're out there. Um, but what you can do, I think, most of all, is. You know, you know, at whatever level, when they're three or thirteen, is get them to talk and face some of the uh, apparent assumptions that go on on the television or in what they read, and actually to call it out. Um, and I remember to, to take a, a racial example. I, you know, I know some of my friends were absolutely horrified that. I allowed my children to have and to read as absolutely beautiful old barbar books, mm. you know, you know, appalling racism was <laughs> right through, you know, with barbar with the king of the elephants and these awful rhinoceroses and um, and creating a colonial town, um, you know, Celesteville as if it was Leopoldville. And it, it always seems to me it's like whether you read the Odyssey, um, you know, you don't want to stop people reading the Odyssey because it's sexist. But you do want them to face these bits. And I remember wonderful conversations. One of the best conversations I had with my kids was about whether we thought the rhinoceroses in Barbar, you know, i.e. the barbarians, had been properly treated by the elephants. <laughs> and it, so, you know, it's like you don't, want to, you, know, you don't want to ban Jane Austen because she got money out of the slave trade. You, what you want to do is actually help people to both enjoy and question and see how it makes a difference to themselves. And I think it's, you know, I think there's no magic bullet, but, but somehow, and I suppose this is where I would say, you know, the book was not useless, was that if you can get people to face and talk about the cultural assumptions that are embedded in the world they have, then some good is going to be done. Some good. Absolutely. Oh, that's, yeah. yeah. Well, it, sorry. Oh, no, yeah, I should I'd quickly repeat back. It was the point that even the women who are, who are entrepreneurs who are running these great businesses and teaching their children these lessons are still being denigrated by the culture because their businesses are referred to as hobby businesses <laughs> or lifestyle businesses if women run them. Yeah. And, you know, I actually think it's, you know, it's a question of being ever watchful. Mm. You know, honestly, it's the price of freedom. And you have to say, you know, every time, excuse me, yeah, yeah. it's not a hobby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and your kids pick that up. And, you know, uh, and in some ways, I think it's a kind of good point. And I am sort of optimistic because, um, you know, when I was a kid, the ladybird books I read, well, they'd be museum pieces. <laughs> you know, that mother was at home and, and then dad would come back you know, with a briefcase and mother would have had... And we, you know, if you think that what you see in what children talk about and read is, um, is a good barometer, you know, then you know, things have really come on but there but there's always there's always new ways of denigrating women's achievements you know there's always new ways of putting it down nobody I mean, even if a man does have a bit i would guess if a man has a business with a turnover of under two million a year nobody's going to call it a hobby <laughs> they're just not you know it's back to pin money <laughs> um, and, it, and it links to a whole load of other things that we see, you know, in culture, like in universities, you know, who are the part-time staff who don't have permanent contracts? Mm. We know that women are more represented, vastly higher represented there. Without, I, mean, I suppose if you called out everything, you'd get very boring. But, you know, you, well, I think one needs to, probably women need to use ridicule a little bit more and outrage a little bit less <laughs> you know and actually most misogyny in terms that any of us would recognize is just silly you know some of it's wicked you know there's some very nasty people peddling it but most of it 
It's just stupid. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, you know, make fun of the bastards. <laughs> don't, always, don't just get cross with them. Make fun of them. Here, <laughs> here. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.